some people turn out a certain way because of their father, and other people turn out a certain way in spite of their father. And I think in your situation, you've turned out the way you have in spite of your biological father. You are listening to episode three of Complicated Fatherhood, an eight-episode podcast docuseries exploring how my own journey through fatherhood has been affected by the father that I never knew. I'm your host, Ryan Rucker. And if this is your first time listening to this podcast, well, thank you, but I need you to stop and go back and start with episode one. I don't want you to miss a thing. And at the end of the episode, if you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. These ratings help others find this podcast, which for somebody like myself, this actually helps me out quite a bit. But regardless, I am honored that you stopped by, so thank you. All right, let's get into it. Have you ever heard of the acronym FOMO? You know, the fear of missing out. At some point, we've all felt it. Usually FOMO was associated with trivial things like cultural events or maybe more meaningful occasions like parties or reunions, things like that. You're terrified that something so epic is about to happen and for one reason or another, you are going to miss it. It's a terrible feeling. But if FOMO was real, How are so many fathers missing out on watching their children grow up? I spent years wondering why my father wasn't around. For me, it wasn't something I'd cry myself to sleep about, but at times I'd wonder, I mean logistically, what could he possibly be doing other than spending time with me? My mom never badmouthed him, but she certainly didn't excuse his absence. She didn't miss a thing, so inevitably I wondered why he was willing to miss everything. When Reagan was three months old, I took my first business trip away from my family. It was the longest six days of my entire life. I traveled to a work retreat in Palm Springs where we stayed at this great hotel, had incredible meals, fun team building activities, and lots and lots of great conversations. The one problem, I missed my three month old terribly. Every time I laughed, I felt guilty. As I laid in bed, getting full nights of sleep, I felt horrible. On our final night as a team, I stayed in my hotel room while all my colleagues went out. Now I'm an introvert, so six straight days of team activities and conversations, it's not necessarily how I plan my week. But as tired as I was, A, I could never admit that, and B, I knew my wife was working 100 times harder than I was because when your partner's not around, breaks and rests are almost impossible to come by. That Friday we finished up much sooner than I anticipated and I got dropped off at the airport at 1 p.m. for my 6.30 flight. I was so early the security wouldn't even let me through to my gate. As I sat there, waiting to be let through, anxiety began to fill my body. Realizing I could drive and get home before this flight was scheduled to even take off. I opted to be financially responsible and not rent a car like I had wanted, though my anxiety heightened as my 6.30 flight got pushed back further and further and further. 
I walked through the door at 10 p.m. that night, exhausted and genuinely sad. I missed my family tremendously. I crept into my daughter's room, bent over the side of her crib, and kissed her tiny forehead for the first time in six days. I'm telling you, those six days away from my child felt like an eternity. I was thankful for pictures, but that wasn't enough. FaceTime was great, but I still couldn't hold her. I know I was simply doing my job. My job helps pay the bills and keep a roof over her head, keeps food on the table. I'm grateful, truly. But when presentations went long, or days didn't feel incredibly productive, I found myself asking, does this really need to be six days? Should I even be here on this trip? Those six days felt like 17 years, which coincidentally is the same amount of time that my father went without seeing me. Fatherhood just hits different when it's put into perspective like that. For years, I would wonder if he'd come back. When I drive down I-87 to Albany, I'd wonder where my paternal family was living. When I'd walk through Crossgates Mall, every black person I saw, I'd wonder, is that my cousin? Is that my aunt? I grew up incredibly close with my maternal grandma. Would I have been this close with my father's mother as well? From time to time, I'd ask myself questions about what my life would have looked like had he stayed in the picture. But as the years turned into decade, it became increasingly clear that he wasn't coming back. I'd find myself asking one specific question. What was more important than me? So the year is 1989, and yep. you just moved to Boston. Why, uh, why Boston? Um, you know what? And it's weird, because when I was in junior high, I remember busing was going on in Boston. Mm. And, and I just remember hearing about, like, you know, I was living in Troy and hearing stories about, like, the racism in Boston and how I heard this one story about how this white teacher got pulled out of her car and beat up by three black students and blah, 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 and all of this. And I said, I would never, ever go to Boston for any reason. There's yeah. no, and then, and I, then I had a friend of mine who moved, moved there and, uh, she needed somebody to drive her van there. And so I they drive her truck to U-Haul. So I, I drove her there and I stayed for a couple of days and I checked it out and I'm like, this is kind of cool, but I still know if this is going to be the spot for me. Yeah. And then, um, then I came back to Albany and I was there for a couple of months and I was like staying with my brother Garland and I was like, oh man, I got to go someplace. I got to, I, I can't stick around to Albany. I just, this is like, you know, I was, you know, it was just, I was feeling uncomfortable and it was just whatever. And I said, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go someplace. So I packed, packed a suitcase and I went to New York and I stayed, I, I got a room next, next to Central Park and I stayed in New York for about, 
I was going to stay there for like three weeks. And after about a week and a half, I'm like, I can't deal with this place. I got, you know, I got to get out of here. This is like, this is too fast paced for me. This is, you know, I just, I just, I, I can't, I can't, you know, and I, I, by this time I had already lived in like Phoenix and lived in Las Vegas. And I just, I'm like, I can't do this. And so I came back, stayed away. And so like, let me, let me check out Boston. Mm-hmm. So I called up Norma. I said, yeah, I'm going to come in Boston for a couple of weeks. And so I came to Boston and I was going to stay with Norma for a couple of weeks. And then I, I got this job at this stereo place. I just like went and casually got it. And I was working at Harvard Square. And uh, so I ended up getting an apartment in the Fenway. Mm-hmm. This was like all in 89. Okay. And uh, so I stayed. What happened? I stayed in the Fenway. Then I... I, one of the reasons I thought Boston would be kind of cool because I knew in a couple years that the Olympics were going to be in, in Atlanta. Okay. I remember it was going to be like five years from then. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I discovered when I was staying there, um, when I uh, originally brought Norma there, was that there's this public access television like where you could just pay like 40 bucks and become a member and take free classes and learn how to do television production Mm -hmm. so i said yeah i'll go back to boston i'll learn how to do television production i'll get into it and five years when they're hiring for people in Atlanta to work for like NBC or CBS or whoever's there, mm-hmm. I can get a job and end up in Atlanta. Okay. That was, that was kind of my plan. And, um, and I started taking public access television classes in Somerville and I really got into it. I was like, I said, wow, this is cool. And, and I'm good at this. Yeah. And then I started teaching classes. And then this one, one woman, Abigail, she said, you would probably be good with kids. You should probably teach some classes to some kids. Mm-hmm. And so and that's kind of how like my kid career got started. I just... I started teaching video production and then I think the next summer I was, I was still living in the Fenway and, uh, I, I was gardening. I got into gardening Mm -hmm. somehow. I don't, you know, and, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to keep all of this straight in my head. <laughs> no worries. And, well, uh, well you know, what about when you started working with kids, you know, and obviously somebody had noticed like, hey, you might be pretty pretty good with kids. Um, you know, what were you, what were your thoughts about working with kids knowing that you had three of your own that at the time you didn't have any contact with? Yeah, I I just I mean, I when they originally said you'd be good working with kids, I'm like Really? 
okay, that doesn't sound like something I'd be into. It was it was sort of like the same thing with with gardening. Mm-hmm. Someone said you should get a little plant and put it out here. I was like, really? Why, why would I do that? Like, mm-hmm. oh, like only God can grow a tree. I'm like, I can't, I can't deal with any of that. Mm-hmm. But um, how? And me working with kids, I, I kind of, I kind of thought more of it as getting better at what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Like I was still trying to do uh, production. So that was that was the perspective that I went into it. Like I'm just, you know, I'm not really a youth worker. I'm I'm just a guy kids are just one more group of people that I'm teaching these skills that I'm learning. And so pretty much everything for the next few years, I like I I did camera at a distance learning place, which wasn't directly working with kids, but it was, you know, we were in a studio broadcasting in different classrooms around the state. Okay. And so I did camera there and then I I ran an after school program in video production and then I worked on a couple like, you know, independent films as like a gaffer or, you know, uh, you know, a sound assistant or, you know, just a production assistant and that was that was sort of like what my whole purpose of being in Boston was about was learning video production and then at one point I was with with a, a girlfriend of mine after I'd been doing video for for a couple of years now mm-hmm. and uh, we were riding through Rockport Maine. And I said, oh, this is where that film school is that I've read about. And so I went in and it was like a Sunday afternoon and there was nothing else open in the town. And I said, uh, you know, I went in and I said, is there you know, a possibility I could get like, you know, an internship or something here? Mm-hmm. And they're like, uh, yeah, you know, and I was like 30 something years old now. Okay. And they're like, yeah, matter of fact, the owner is upstairs right now. You want to go up and talk to him? So I went up and I talked to this guy and he just asked me some basic questions. He, he says, you know what a BMC is? I'm like, yeah. He says, you know what a coaxial cable? I'm like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up uh, going back up there. I just stayed there until and just learned how to do film production and which was like a lot different than public access. But uh, I learned like, you know, I sat in on script writing classes and different kinds of things. And and, uh, when I came back to Boston, I had like a lot more knowledge and they were interviewing for a job at Boston Film and Video Foundation for an education director. 
And I interviewed for that job. And I amazingly got it. Oh, wow. Okay. They, like, hired me. And it's like, wow. And, it, and in part, they, because I had, like, a few years background of, like, working with young people when they were trying to expand their grants into, to, into um, more youth-related programs, because mm-hmm. they were on their way out. Okay. You know, it was like, you know, BFVF had been there for, like, you know, 30 years, but it was kind of on its last leg when I was there. Okay. And uh, I was just absolutely terrible at that job. I mean, before that, I was working at um, the um, Peg Access in Somerville, working City Hall. Okay. And then, then I went to BFVF. But like I said, I was terrible at that job. I was like, matter of fact, years later, I I remember, well, when I was there at one point, I was sitting on the fire escape with my boss and we were smoking cigarettes and talking. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is really rough. And she says, oh, Maurice, you're doing a great job. I said, Anne-Marie, if you think I'm doing a great job, you have no idea what I'm doing. Then I ran into her year. I ran into her years later, and we were having lunch. And she says, "You know what? I I really want to apologize because you told me you didn't know what you were doing, and I didn't believe you. But mm-hmm. you really didn't." And I'm like, "Yeah, I know I didn't because were, you know, because I'd been doing." production and, and lighting and editing and stuff like that. But this was, this job was an administrative job. I was like writing a catalog and signing people up for classes and dealing with contracts for instructors and getting classrooms set up and stuff. I was terrible at that. I was like, oh my God. So I ended up leaving there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I applied for a job um, running a house in Jamaica Plain. Okay. This is how I got to Jamaica Plain with teenage boys. Okay. And uh, so I, I, well, I got the job. So I moved to Jamaica Plain, and I was running running this house. I did that for about six years. But midway through it, I had, when I lived in the Fenway, I had become friends with with a, a couple different people, and one was um, this woman and her boyfriend. She had this British boyfriend who played guitar, and we'd just been been friends, and you know, nothing nothing big. But yeah. then when I moved to Jamaica Plain. It was around the same time that they moved to Jamaica Plain. Mm-hmm. And one time I was just like, I had a tape of some old songs that I had done. Like when I lived in Glens Falls, lived out on, uh, on Glen Lake. Yeah. And some, some stuff from when I was in Saratoga. And, and he listened to them. He said, you know, we should start a band. And he was a part owner of a record label at the time. Okay. And um, 
So we had a place to rehearse, and he and I said, yeah, we start this band, call it like the Johnson Brothers or something like that. And okay. um, Where'd that name come from? It was just, you know, just sort of like a random name, just Johnson, Jones, Jackson, you know. It was just like, just some kind of cool sort of like family name mm-hmm. that you'd see, you know, guys in different races with the same last name. And uh, so we started this band. And uh, while I was still like doing the house, and I was also, you know, it's like, like I said, I, I got into working with kids basically out of necessity. It's like, this is who they were, this is the people that were hiring me. It was like, okay, I'll apply for this job. All right, I got this job. Now yeah. now I guess I, I work with kids. Okay. And um so that's that's how that whole thing started. And you know, and there were I mean, there were like specific times that I've I've worked with kids and yeah, I, and I just remember like different different times with different kids like you know this i remember this kid was like one time i was working at this after school program and um he was like sort of like hanging hanging over me and i remember like as he was talking to me he looked in my ears and said you have really tiny ears then I looked at him. I remember he was on the right of me. And I, I remember thinking, this kid could be Ryan. Mm. He was like a little Spanish kid. You know, and I'm like, wow, this kid could be Ryan. It's like, wow, this is kind of a, kind of a weird, weird connection. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, and this, I mean, because this was also a, a kid. It wasn't like the, this was the first time I'd seen him. You know, it was just just the way he was next to me. It, it, it just his face that close to me kind of reminded me of you. Okay. You know, and I, you know, and I've, you know, I've had situ, you know, situations where, you know, I, you know, I mean, I, I would think about clearly. I would think about my daughter a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially as I got older and there was, I mean, there was this time when I was living on Elm Street, Rochelle called me and said, these kids are driving me crazy. I'm not, I don't think I can deal with this anymore. You're going to have to take these kids off my hands. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, that's what I'm going to have to do. Then I started talking to everybody in my family and seeing what services I had available. Because at the time, I was just, you know, I was working at a hospital making whatever people made at that time. Yeah. But it wasn't enough to, like, rate, take care of two kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I went and I, you know, checked in with DSS. And so there were some services that were available. I found out about WIC program and all of this different stuff. Then a week later... Like I called Rochelle back and I said, so what's the deal? How, you know, 
we got to make some sort of arrangements to get the kids here. She says, what, are you crazy? You think I'm going to send my kids to you? You must be nuts. I'm like, really? Huh. You you were just playing that. You were, you, oh, okay. And no, I don't think that we, we, we talked for like, I don't think years after that. Interesting. Why do you think she said that? Why, which part, the, the beginning or the end? Um, I guess either, but just more, more so why, why do you think she said like, you know, you must be, you must be crazy. You know, you, you think I'm nuts? Right. Like, where do you think that came from? Um, I think, well, I mean, I think it came from her perspective of children should be with their mother. But I think that the original call just came out of a moment of frustration of her not knowing how to deal and not, you know, she had no idea what she was going to do because it's not, you know, she wasn't really relying a lot on her family or she wasn't expecting to rely a lot on her family. Mm-hmm. And, um, I just, yeah, I, I, like, I don't know if it was originally a test to see if I was going to say, well, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. And she was just surprised to see what I'm like, all right, let me see what I can do. I'm going to work something out. You know, I, you know, I'd talk to like, the, cause we lived, me and Garland lived in a two bedroom apartment on Elm street. I had already talked to the like management company about getting another apartment or another one of their buildings mm-hmm. and see if I could get it subsidized somehow or, you know, what, you know, yeah, I mean, it was a really busy week, <laughs> you know, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> like she said, no, that ain't going to happen. So hmm. it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, all right, cool. So now, now you're in Boston, you're in Jamaica Plain, um, you know, like starting the band originally, the Johnson Brothers, and it eventually turns into Jones Brothers. Is that correct? Right, right. Before we actually did, uh, before we played out. And it was okay. it, the way we actually put the band together, I always thought was kind of interesting, is that he picked a bunch of songs, I pinched, picked a bunch of songs. Then we took about a month or maybe almost two months and we each learned our parts and he knew of a drummer from his job mm-hmm. and I knew of a bass player from the jam sessions that I'd go to at this club. So we said, you know, we said to him, it's like, hey, we're starting a band, wanna be in it. Gonna learn these 15 songs, here's the tape, show up on this date, mm-hmm. have a suit and tie with you so we could take pictures, then we'll go and we'll rehearse. And we would just like rehearse the songs in order that we were going to play them. Mm-hmm. Like everyone was expected to know the songs when we first got together. The most part they did, uh, except for the bass player. He wasn't really, he was like one of these cats that just like playing old songs and didn't want to play anything different. So, Gotcha. And now, what kind of music were you guys playing at the time? Just straight blues, straight classic blues. Uh, 
just re-envisioned Delta Blues, uh, straight ahead Chicago Blues. Uh, it was just like this thing that was going to be like we would play every once in a while and we would just do all these classic blues songs that people didn't really know. We didn't look at it as sort of like a cover band. We looked at it sort of like a re-envisioned band. We'd like take, you know, these old songs and basically do them electrified. And, uh, but... But see, Ron and the bass player and the guitarist that I started the band didn't get along. And then so we uh, basically, I kicked Ron out of the band, the bass player. And I got this guy who lived down the street from me, this guy from India named Kevin to play bass. Okay. And he, he, he came in. And this was on Robeson Street. And Robeson Street was probably the first street that I lived on that I felt anywhere close to being home. Interesting. Like, why do you think that is? Well, it was, I was, I lived in, I, I, I ran this apartment that apparently had had issues with the neighbors. They just, you know, cause they, you know, all these guys were just in, the, in this house were like young thugs as far as they were, they were concerned. Mm-hmm. And I came in and I, one of the first things I started doing was gardening in front of the house. So as I was gardening, I got to, people would walk by and like, it's like talking to me. And I got, I started to get to know people and I became friends with uh, the little girl and little boy across the street from me, Becca and Jacob. And then I became friends with Eric and Nella who lived next to, to them in Tom and Naomi's house. And you know, so on and so forth. So I got, and then, so the people that lived, there was a, a lot next to my house and below the house, because uh, the house is on a hill. Mm-hmm. And, and the, uh, the, the street was on a hill. Robeson Street was only like one block hill. And so the people who lived on the other side of the lot were part of some like religious order. There was two families that lived in it. And apparently at one point before the two families lived there, there was like a a monastery type, like group of like priests or young priests or whatever from St. Herman's of Alaska. That's the church that they were from. And Father Patrick and his family and Father Ben and his family. And on the lot, there was sort of like a hill going up, a stone hill. And, um, but you could see at some point it was tiered, like there's um, telephone pole tiers. And I said, wow, they used to garden here. He said, oh yeah, yeah, I got, I got to know people. 
And um, Father Patrick said, yeah, yeah, the, the priest that lived here before us, he used to garden. I'm like, oh, really? Can I, can I do this? Can I garden here? He's like, yeah, sure. So I started gardening there. And I'd start having the boys come out and garden. Then neighbors would come over and they'd say, oh, can I have a spot? I'm like, yeah, take that over there. Mm-hmm. And then take this over here. And then next thing you knew, it's like everybody in the neighborhood was gardening on the side of this hill. Hey, not bad. And it sort of like became like this community garden. And uh and so yeah, Robeson's you know, then I you know, I started dating Perry Mason, the woman who lived across the street from me and I you know, I my friend Delane, who I also knew from the Fenway, ended up moving on Robeson Street. So just like all of these people just kind of got behind me and what I was doing, what I was doing with the boys, what I was doing with gardening. And as I started playing music, these, these are the same people that were like the originally original people coming to my shows. And so it was, you know, me and Father Patrick, we were talking one day, and uh, I was saying, yeah, we should have, like, a, a community, like, picnic or something. Mm-hmm. And then a few months later, you know, in the, in the middle, or near the end of the summer, when it, was, when it was going on, Father Patrick walked up to me and says, see what a little conversation will do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. And so... Then so, and when I was there, when I was in Jamaica playing, I I started hanging out um, this guy, Bob Feathers. And uh, I can't, we were just looking for a new bar to hang out at. Okay. And we found the, the Midway Cafe, which was across the street from the school where I was working, also in Jamaica Plain. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I guess, you know, I started, you know, I was I was probably hanging out there for about a year, year and a half before they ever even knew that I had anything to do with music. Okay. I was like, yeah. It's like, yeah, I uh so I'm gonna start a band. And they're like, Yeah, uh, okay. Oh, <laughs> what it was was one time this this soul band was singing, was playing. And I said to Jay, the owner, I said, Jay I can sing better than him. Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, because he just knew me as this guy who came in his bar and like hung out. Mm-hmm. And um, then so uh, we played there and it was like a major success. And Conrad, that original British guy, he and I got in a big fight and he ended up quitting the band. And we went through a couple different guitar players until we got Chris Fabrice. Okay. And Chris was a guy who used to play in a band with Kevin, the bass player. And uh, so that's that's what was going on with bands. Um, okay. And but, it sounds but, uh, like you guys had quite a few gigs. I mean, you know, throughout Boston, um, were you guys getting a lot of shows? Were you guys kind of well-known within the area? Yeah, we, um, we played... We played, one of the things that became with the band, like the core band, it was like, ended up being me, Joel on drums, Kevin on bass, and Chris on on guitar, was these guys were 
all really talented guys. All three of them were Berkeley dropouts, which, you know, sort of like the, it's like the good players and bands are usually Berkeley dropouts. The ones that graduate go on and become teachers. So, so that's, that's what these guys were. But the thing with them, almost any night of the week, it's almost like they felt like they were a Jones brother. And like, so I could call them and say, Hey, we got a gig tomorrow night. Can you play? And they hardly ever, like, I don't really ever remember any one of them saying no to me. Like, yeah, like, no, yeah, we can play it. So we would play like probably at a minimum six times a month is and at a maximum as much as 15 times like i remember a couple week weekends we played like five times over like a three-day period oh wow yeah we just i mean we just always played and then when the band started father patrick who originally like let me garden there and originally and was the one that talked to me about having the uh, the block party. Mm-hmm. Ended up giving us a van. We had this big blue and white van that the church used that he used to you know used to take people to church, but then they got a new one. So he gave he gave us that van. That's what I mean. Stuff like that, you know. When I stopped living on Robeson Street and me and Ann were living together. Uh, another neighbor of of mine on Robeson Street used to let us practice at his house. Mm-hmm. Like every Thursday, we could practice. Matter of fact, when we uh, when we uh, we played at the Glens Falls Blues Festival, he came down with us, and uh, he was just like a real, real supporter. Yeah, okay. Ken Barnes. Okay. But. um now, yeah, that's you have any aspirations of playing outside Boston. I know Boston was, you know, was pretty big for you guys, but what was the ultimate goal with the Jones brothers? Well, it's sort of what broke up the band. It's cuz I was, I mean, I was a madman. Like I was just always calling people and like emails weren't that big then, but I was sending out emails and sending letters to people, packaging up press kits and sending them out. And then, you know, then we did that record and the record just did unbelievably well. Mm-hmm. Like we, um, I mean, cause the finances in the group was every time we played somewhere, we would do a five way split and each It'd be one split for each member in the band and a split for in the bank. Mm. And so by the time we got, you know, a couple of years into it and we were like talking about doing a record, we had like $8,000 in the bank mm-hmm. for uh, the Jones Brothers, which was kind of amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, then so we, uh, we did the record and, uh, 
we got nominated for Boston Blues Award. Mm-hmm. Then we got a got we got this award and I think it was in Pennsylvania for the Crossroads Blues Festival. We were we were being called like either I think it was called the Innovation Award or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it was kind of cool. Like, this was like the, one of our goals was to get on big stages and play at festivals and stuff like that and um, get out of this Boston market. And that was the goal. Mm-hmm. And they wanted us to come. The festival was on a weekend. I forgot. I think it was in April. But it was we could have either played a Friday night or a Saturday night, mm-hmm. and we had we already had two gigs scheduled for Friday and Saturday, and we were going to have to cancel one. And the one that I wanted to cancel was a birthday party that we were playing for a friend of Kevin and Chris and the gig that they wanted me to cancel was the one on, I think was, or the other way around the other, that was on a Saturday night. They wanted me to cancel the, uh, the one that had taken me a long time to get. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you guys, we got this band together to get out of this market, to get bigger. This is our first big shot to Mm -hmm. play in front of sort of like a national crowd. And you guys would rather, you know, play at a birthday party on that night? Like, I don't don't even get that. Mm -hmm. And what it was, was they weren't really the most social guys yeah so and so this drummer was sort of like uh was like the charisma in their band and there was going to be a lot of girls at this party Mm -hmm. and that was their goal they wanted to show their asses in front of these girls Mm. i'm like oh man i'm like "If, if we don't do this i can't play with you guys anymore this is like we, you know, because we were running jam sessions and we were playing at the House of Blues more than any local black band. You know, the original House of Blues in Cambridge. Yeah, we, yeah. Uh, you know, we played there more than any other local band, and um, you know, we were on our way. And it's like, but they were kind of, I think, at this point in hindsight, they were just kind of sick of my shit. They were sick of me telling them like what they had to do. They were, you know, they were like getting tired of always having to wear suits and ties, but that's, you know, that's like dictated in this band. This is, this is our look. We're not just, you know, we're not just a bunch of jeans and sneakers kind of guys. We're like, you know, we're a uniform. We are a band. It's sort of like, you know, like the 10 machine, right? Mm -hmm. We are a band. And uh, they just, you know, we're getting kind of sick of me, I think. And so they're like, yeah, well, fuck him. 
we're like, we're, we're just not going to play with him anymore. Mm. And so that's what broke up the Jones brothers. Oh. And we got a, a big gig out of town and they didn't want to cancel a birthday party to go to it. So, and now, and now neither one of those guys plays music anymore. Chris lives in Arizona. His big thing is he goes around to different baseball fields and mm-hmm. checks out different baseball parks in the country. That's his, that's his main passion. And Kevin got into IT. And that, so he became like Microsoft certified. And that's what he, neither one of them. And they were unbelievably good musicians. Mm-hmm. They don't play anymore. I just never understood that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Interesting. Now, you had mentioned earlier very briefly um, that around that time you started living with Anne. You know, who, uh, yeah. tell, me, tell me a little bit about that period. Okay. That was like probably after I'd been in JP for. I don't know, a few years. Um, it was um, it was probably what ninety eight, ninety nine, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we met. How do we met? We we met through a friend of mine who worked for her when she worked at this health center, and. I just called her up after I met her. I mean, it was just, you know, I was trying to think of how it started. It just, we, we, I mean, we just started dating. And mm-hmm. I was just, you know, more than I ended up meeting her parents and meeting her brother and meeting her family and so on and so forth. And after about, I don't know. I think after about four years together, yeah, about after about four years together, uh, I asked her father, would it be cool if we got married? And he said, yeah, we'd love that. Mm-hmm. And so we got married. And uh, first house we lived in, Anne had bought. We lived in, we lived in a, uh, Roslindale, mm-hmm. which is right next to Jamaica Plain. Okay. And um, we were there for about like six years. And... So, you know, with Anne, you know, obviously you guys, you know, were, were together for a little bit, got married. Um, and around that time, like, when was it that you told her that you had three other kids? Oh, she, oh, she knew, she knew. Like when, when, uh, like probably like when we first started dating, mm-hmm. but yeah, before, before I had moved out of the house on Rodson street, like, yeah, she, I mean, she was actually, she, she, she was in on it like early on. No, were you nervous to tell her, especially because she was ten years younger? I... No, not really, because it was it was like one of those things that 
I I kind of felt I was coming clean on a lot of stuff in my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, this is something, you know, because up until then, I had lived a bunch of different places around around um, Boston, and I worked I worked a lot of like different kinds of jobs, so I never felt like I was actually. It was before I met Anne that it was like Robeson Street that really got me comfortable talking about my kids oh, why is that until i um because i because i like i said remember i said i it felt like like family mm-hmm. it was probably the first time in a long time that i felt safe you know i felt like these people you know it's like i've always kind of had this 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 thing where uh, a a good friend will you know a, a real true friend will let you sleep on their couch if you show up in their door at two o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. and without any explanation you just say I need a place to stay. Robeson Street was the first time since I had not been staying with my brother Garland that I felt like that. Okay. Like I just, you know, I never. I mean, in all honesty, I, I, I never felt that way, really, with with Gene, with the whole family thing that was going on, and the whole, you know, that whole cop thing that was going on. I just never, I never felt safe until I was on Robeson Street. Then I felt I could talk about things. I could be who I am. And they're not going to say, oh, my God, what a horrible person you are. Please leave us. You know, it was like I felt I felt like I was surrounded by like almost like family. But, um, yeah, so like I think when 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 she when she came into the picture, I was already exposing myself okay so okay now what were your friends reactions when you had when you had first kind of let that off your shoulders saying like hey guys like i know you've known me for a while but like i need to tell you something i actually have three kids in two separate places like what what were the reactions um i'm trying to think because i think one of the first people i told was kevin not Kevin, not Kevin, the bass player, because he also lived on Robeson Street. But uh, Terry Mason's um, gay roommate, I think he was like, like, and I remember just saying, oh man, I've been keeping this shit inside for like the longest time. I just, I just, I just, I, I, I want you to know because I, I think that we're going to be friends for a while. That I, I actually have three kids, and then actually, while, yeah, while I was on Robeson Street, is when Adrian came to stay for a little while. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, she couldn't stay with me because I was running a, running a house with teenage boys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, her her whole thing was, or I might have told you, Rochelle called me and said, I got... I I I got to get Adrian out of here. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and I kind of remember thinking like, oh, not this again. That <laughs> <laughs> this trick never works, you know. <laughs> but um, so yeah, Adrian actually actually got to know some of these people on Robeson Street, or, you know, not that she remembers them, but they remember her. Okay. Gotcha. And and so around this time, obviously, you know, like you're in Boston and it seems really interesting because you were in Boston, you were doing the band thing, you're done the video production thing for a while, you know, you felt comfortable, felt safe. And it seems like based off just all of our conversations that this is really the first time that you've felt at home in in part because you've kind of created your own life in Boston. Does that sound accurate? Yeah. I mean, I mean, if, you know, if you would, if you would have asked me, I've been creating my own life up until then anyway, Mm -hmm. but it was the first time that I focused as really as as really as an adult mm-hmm. like i just you know i like i said i don't think i became an adult until even though i had i had had kids but you know and i i had had jobs and stuff like that mm-hmm. but i i never really had a forward looking purpose like i never you know, I never really thought that I would live to be 62, to tell you the truth. Really? I just never thought that I would be here right now. So for until until I turned 40. Okay. Until I turned 40 is when I, I'm like, wow. Like, I've actually lived. I've, I've lived some, some life. And I got some stuff going on right now that is kind of good mm-hmm. you know but my 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 whole thing at, at this point in, in my life in boston i was doing things that i always thought that i wanted to do even yeah. when like even when i was like back in the boys and girls club or back when it was the boys club when I was in junior high in Troy Mm -hmm. uh, I used to like go over I used to make things there I would I would like make like paper mache things and make art pieces and dioramas and puppets and I'd also then I'd go upstairs and I was in the book club and I got into like writing, writing stories, writing songs. And also at the same time, I had a social studies teacher, Mr. Leibowitz, who was in junior high. That's like Iroquois village stuff, right? Is that what you remember in junior high? Uh, 
Kind of, it doesn't really sound familiar. I guess it was a while. Yeah. Ago. Well, that's kind of, and then so we were, we were in school. We were doing um, uh, making Iroquois villages out of sticks and twigs and clay and stuff that I work with to this day. Mm-hmm. And we were also writing an improv play where everyone just got to like get up and say whatever the next line they thought they should say. And, mm-hmm. and I was like, I remember being really active in that. Mm-hmm. And so all of the things that I was doing in Boston were things that I felt I was introduced to in junior high but never because my high school career was so spotty. I didn't spend a whole lot of time in any one school. Like I, you know, it's like I almost, I had more, slightly more, more high schools than I had kids. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I just, I went to one high school and I'd go to another one and I'd get transferred to another one. I'd get kicked out of another one. So I never really got to like sit down in a classroom and do an art project in high school. Or I never had got to write any stories or anything in high school Mm -hmm. because I was never in any school long enough or when I was in it, I wasn't going enough that I would be, you know, I'd have anything to follow through on. Yeah. So, so yeah, it was just, and and like I said, it's, it's, it's almost like, like growing asparagus. My life was, you know, I, I, I figure I never lived once, once I start gardening, I didn't live any place long enough until I got to Robeson Street, where you can actually grow asparagus, because asparagus takes three seasons for you to grow it. So if you don't think you're going to be there for three seasons, why even plant asparagus? And that's kind of how I was living my life up until Robeson Street. Mm, Okay. All right. So now on on Robeson Street, you know, life seemed to be... Going pretty good, you know. Obviously, had Anne, had some really good friends that were family. You know, had the band thing going on. You know, um, you know, what was your family doing back in Albany? Um, I really, the only ones that I really kept in touch with on a regular basis was Garland and my nephew Jarrell. Mm. Like Jarrell would come to Boston. And uh, he would, this was like, especially after I moved to Jamaica Plain, you know, there were, were, I wasn't, you know, I, you know, I I would get calls from, you know, like when my father died, my brother Bill called me and, you know, so I wasn't like not, not in touch with everybody. I just, I wasn't in touch with I like I am with them now, yeah. and I've never been with them like I am now. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, My understanding is that like in the, in the early two thousands, obviously you're talking about how you've always been in contact with, with Garland. Um, And like in the early two thousands, you know, your, your father had passed, but uh, your mother was still alive at that point. So did, did, did you talk to her any? Yeah, like when, like when I like randomly come down here, come down there, and like I said, when Adrian was here, she was actually living in Albany, so I had to, like there was a reason I had to go down every weekend. So, yeah, I I mean, my mother, my mother would would say the period that she was most concerned with me is probably Plattsburgh days. Okay. Like when I was 19, 20, 21, um, up until, you know, up until, you know, I, like I would show up every, I'd be sort of like the prodigal son. Like I'd be doing something, then it would go bad. And I, you know, it's sort of how I ended up here this time. So, and, yeah. and then with, did Anne ever meet your mom? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, a few times. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think she might have even gone to a family reunion. It wasn't like I was, you know, I, I could go like two months without talking to somebody in my family but I would never really go more than that. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. So then, you know, um, you know, around that time, early 2005 ish, um, I, I certainly don't know much about this period, but my understanding is that your mom had passed in 2005. Gotcha. Um, how did you, matter of fact, what's, what's today? Uh, today's February 23rd. Oh shit! Her birthday was just because she she because she passed away like five days before her birthday. Her oh, birthday wow. was February nineteenth, and I don't believe that. I don't even know what I was doing this February. Oh, I was doctor's appointments all day. That's what I was doing on the nineteenth. Mm. Gotcha. And and how did you how did you find out that she passed? Uh, I was. It was weird. I was. DJing at this this party at this store in JP, and I got a call in between day, and I like I, I picked it up, and it was my brother Bill. He said, "Yo, my mama, mama just passed away." I'm like, "So what's what's the deal? What's you know?" And he just told me that I hung up the phone. And I just started crying unbelievably hard. It was just like, it was, it was, uh, I just, I left, you know, I had to come back and get my equipment at another time. I, I went home. Um, I told Anne, or I might've called her and told her. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was just weird because I I had just seen her recently. They had this this appreciation dinner for her, and I went down there for that. Mm-hmm. 
And this was like, wasn't too long after that. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, Bill called me. Bill, Bill was ultimately, even though I had like a tighter connection with Garland, Bill was always the one that would reach out to people and say, here's what's going on with the family. Or, you know, are you going to be here for this? Are you going to be here for that? Yeah. So, Bill yeah. was the boss. Okay. And then, then after that, you know, like, you know, now your mom had passed and obviously incredibly emotional period. Um, how were you feeling? What, what were your, what were your thoughts about family around that time? I, you know, I, uh, this is still kind of emotional, but, uh, I just remember thinking that I had, I had fucked up. Like I had, I had, I didn't really spend as much time with my mother as I should have. I probably didn't show her the respect that I should have. You know, I guess, you know, she always called me her excitable boy. Cause I was always, she'd say something to me and I'd, I'd be like, Oh man, I don't believe this. You know, I was always arms up in the air about something, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I guess she thought, cause my sister Marsha said to me recently said, um, you know, mom, mom said, mama lived a good life. I mean, you know, she did have, you know, she was always wondering what she had done to make you go away. And that like, <laughs> I'm telling you, Ryan, that was, uh, that was a, like, like a shot to my heart that like, that I actually, me not being around actually caused her <sighs> oh man yeah i'm um, i'm sorry man no that's i can yeah. <laughs> oh you know what man i you know i i cry at tv shows so <laughs> me too <laughs> it's like you ever start doing that you start crying like i'm doing now but then you laugh while you're crying it's like boy this is kind of ridiculous how can you laugh and cry at the same time yeah but, life life's strange man yeah but yeah that's i mean that was the, the one thing that like you know like you might you might think I, I I I regretted like not being there with my kids and ultimately I do ultimately regret it but really not on the visceral level that I felt that I, I let my mother down that I did that I wasn't there for her. And you know, she my mother actually went through I remember you talking about some of the times you, you and Jean were going through before she met her her husband, mm-hmm. and 
I just remember, you know, you know, standing in the welfare line, you know, uh, getting getting the big hunks of cheese and the big cans of peanut butter, and you know, just all the things that she had to do. She had to go go back to school to learn how to type, so she could have a job, so she could like, you know finish raising these three kids that she had left in her house, me, Garland, and Tony. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was, um, it's, uh, to, to, to look back on it, it's like, I, I, I mean, I have, I have a lot of regrets. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of regrets. And I, and I try, try, I try not to well on on anything that I have done because I think you said it to me it's like what's done is done and you can't really go back and fix it so you might as well try to live the best life forward that you possibly can next time on Complicated Fatherhood and I just typed in Ryan Rucker. I remember it well because it was very, very overwhelming. You didn't say, get the hell out of my face. I do remember kind of asking the question. And you got that look on your face at one point. You said to me, how could you? How could you just leave? Complicated Fatherhood was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ryan Rucker. All music was composed and recorded by me as well. Join us for the conversation on Instagram at Complicated Fatherhood. And if you like what you hear, I'd love for you to share this podcast on any of your favorite social media platforms using the hashtag Complicated Fatherhood. We'll see you next time.